Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Seth. We, we, I think it's just a perpetual mystery as to what time of day we're actually recording, and I'm totally fine keeping it that way. Yeah, me How too. are you this morning? I'm great. I'm great. I'm in a good mood because we're together again via Zoom. I know. It's not the same as being in the studio, which for this podcast we've never been, but it is, it is always good to be together. Tell me, is it as hot in Pennsylvania as it is in Virginia right now? I don't like, think is it is it painful hot? to be outside? Yes, it's okay. Terrible outside. Marshall, my dog, just when you walk out the door, he just bolts for the shade and then he lays down, and we haven't even walked twenty feet. I'm like, no, we have to keep going at least a little bit. Like, come on. I wish Winnie, our dog, was the same way, but she just like won't stop until she's like way too tired and it's like is she gonna be able to walk home it's been one of those mornings where you walk outside and like oh my skin might melt off today that's how it that's been the last several days in virginia well climate change is real let's do something about it before we do anything about climate change i have a question for you okay this could come true, depending on climate change, now that I think about it. Oh, no. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to fight a shark in the ocean, but you only have a handgun, or fight a bear on land, but you only have a bow and flaming arrows? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I... I think pretty quickly I'd go for the bear on land. I feel like that's at least an equal playing field, whereas a shark has a real advantage in the water. <laughs> uh, also, if my only weapon in the water is a handgun, which I think is dependent on like some sort of, even if it's just a small one, like some sort of explosion, I think my, my odds of, of survival would be pretty low in both situations but significantly lower fighting a shark in the water with a handgun so i'd take my chances with a bear also shooting flaming arrows sounds pretty cool see i went the other way i do think the gun would be hard to operate underwater but i at least think i just have to aim then but with the flaming arrows i don't really know if i have a hope of trying to do the bow and arrow attach the flaming arrow and aim. I feel like you'd light it on fire after you like 
after you oh, loaded yes. it up, right? How are you going to carry around sense. a bunch of flaming arrows? <laughs> you really need to think this through. <laughs> if I don't know whether I'm supposed to light the arrow before or after, then I should probably use the handgun. Yeah, I'm sticking I think with the handgun. Maybe you did make the right choice then. <laughs> Either way, we are almost certainly going to die. Like, yes. About 98%, no, 99.8% positive that that would happen. Oh, man. Well, does th- wait, does this question have anything to do with the scripture today? No. Okay. I don't I think was, so. I was, secret- I was secretly hoping not, and also secretly hoping that it did, but do- <laughs> should I go ahead and read it then? Yeah, that's... that's- Bring this back on track and read the scripture. All right, this is coming from Genesis chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. And he heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken everything of our fathers, and from what belonged to our father he has made all this wealth. And Jacob saw Laban's face, and look, it was not disposed toward him as in time past. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your birthplace, and I will be with you. And Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah out to the field to his flocks, and he said to them, I see your father's face that it's not disposed towards me as in times past, but the God of my father has been with me, and you know that with all my strength I have served your father. Your father has tricked me and has switched my wages ten times over, Yet God has not let him do me harm. If thus, he said, the spotted ones will be your wages, all the flocks bore spotted ones. And if he said, the brindled ones will be your wages, all the flocks bore brindled ones. And God has reclaimed your father's livestock and given it to me. And so, at the time when the flocks were in heat, I raised my eyes and saw in a dream, and look, The rams mounting the flocks were brindled, spotted, and speckled. And God's messenger said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Raise your eyes, pray, and see. All the rams mounting the flocks are spotted, brindled, and speckled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made me a vow. Now, rise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birthplace. And Rachel and Leah answered, and they said to him, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's house? Why, we have been counted by him as strangers, for he has sold us, and he has wholly consumed our money. For whatever wealth God has reclaimed from our father is ours and our children's. And so, whatever God has said to you, do. Jacob rose and bore off his children and his wives on the camels, and he drove all his livestock and all his substance that he had acquired, his property and livestock that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to Isaac, his father, in the land of Canaan. And Laban had gone to shear his flocks, and Rachel stole the household gods that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean in not telling him he was fleeing. And he fled. He and all that was his, and he rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the high country of Gilead. Whoa. (laughs) This seems 
like a lot. But first, before we get into it, why did you go with Robert Alter's translation for the passage today? I always love Alter's word choice. I think he just he does a good job making it flow. And every time there's there's a Hebrew word that occurs twice or more, he always renders it the same way. So you can see the way words occur multiple times in a passage. I think that's a helpful way to show the way the narrators intentionally write these and connect different parts of the story together. And this repetition is such a theme and feature of biblical, biblical narrative. I think Alter does a great job rendering that. And if you have the, the book in front of you, he also has some, some helpful little comments about his translations, why he chose different words. I just want to highlight one which shows how thorough and even pedantic he can be. He says, any share in the inheritance, in verse 14. The Hebrew, literally, share and inheritance, is a hendiatus. Two words from one concept, like part and parcel, with a denotative meaning, as translated here, and a connotation something like any part at all. So sometimes he has these helpful comments, and you think, oh, that's really very enlightening. And sometimes he has these helpful comments where you think, it is really possible to know too much about something. (laughs) So all that to say, when he does those little comments, you know that your translation is in good hands. I know this is kind of a (laughs) This passage is crazy. Is there anything that stuck out to you that you thought? Well, that's especially interesting. There is quite a bit. Uh, he used the language of mounting a lot, which was a little unexpected, but hey, I guess that's nature in the situation. I think the thing that stands out to me, it, it, and this is a feels like a kind of a bigger thread through the story of Jacob's life, but it's kind of frustrating to me that Jacob gets really mad about Laban deceiving him. When that's literally all that Jacob does. He like he takes advantage of his blind aging father, together with his with his mother's help, to steal the the family blessing from his older brother, Esau. And then he turns right around after this like high and mighty proclamation of injustice against him and deceives Laban again. And on the other hand, I also think if someone's like running off with all of your flocks and all your stuff, I feel like it would take them a long time to kind of get out of sight. You'd really have to not be paying attention for a really long period of time to not notice someone someone leaving with all of your livestock, all of your possessions, like your like two of your children and their grandchildren. Wait, what? I don't want to say that Laban deserved it. But he clearly wasn't paying close enough attention to see all of this just kind of walking out the door. So it it stands out to me, this idea that Jacob is both consistently swindling, but is frustrated when he gets swindled. That was a good recap of all of Isaac's backstory. Man. That's exactly what he is. He's like this little trickster. Jacob. <laughs> I think that's what makes him like such a compelling character though. Yeah. Like I just I love his story. 
because you're exactly right. He tricked all these people. He gets tricked, and then he's mad about it. He's like, I can't believe they did that. I'm, I'm going to leave with all my stuff. Yeah, and, and if, again, if you... I don't want to put any assumptions on any listeners' views of the Bible, but, you know, if you view Genesis like I do, and I think like you do as well, as kind of this this story that might have, like, historical roots and foundations, but is more so intended to be this kind of, you know, origin narrative of a people... And Jacob is renamed Israel later on. It, it, there's so much about the character and personality of Jacob that the people of Israel see in themselves collectively, too. And Jacob's the younger brother, and he's the one who is deceived by people who are supposed to be taking care of him. And he always finds a way to kind of gain the upper hand, kind of get an edge on people. And as frustrating as it is in the story, it is kind of interesting from that perspective to think about how Israel views itself as the underdog, as the one who doesn't use brute strength, but kind of uses really these tactics of the the oppressed to like to kind of undermine systems that are set out against them in some way. I think that was especially helpful. I even think when when we read Genesis and we see all these all these different people's names one of the ways we can think about them is that they're usually kind of synonymous with a group of people so we can think about Jacob as Israel and then Laban maybe as a as at least paradigmatic of some other group mm-hmm. and for example in line 20 it identifies Laban as the Armenian like I think we even start to mm. see a little hint of that yeah, so the people of the people of Aram become represented, and you see that too earlier, um, even in the way that the text describes Esau. We're talking about essentially being a red hairy monster. There's like some real, there's some real, honestly like ethnically disparaging comments about the people group that Esau is representing as well, and you and you see that there's these subtle things like that that are their clues to who who all these folks are because and who they're representing in the narrative because if they were true if this was if Laban was just Jacob's uncle they wouldn't necessarily have a different um, ethnic identity they they would be part of one clan or part of one family in the same place but here they're talking still about the connections between them but are giving these distinctive identifiers even ones that distinguish between twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, who were born at the same time, but one of whom came out hairy and red, and the other came out essentially scrawny and <laughs> and just kind of the complete opposite of that. Those images into Israel's perspective on their experiences, their origins, I think it's a helpful way to look at this, because it, it does, for me, again, it becomes more meaningful when we have that framework than just thinking about there was a person named Jacob and he deceived his brother named Esau. Like these stories, they may not be historically accurate as we define them now. It doesn't necessarily diminish their truth that they were communicating for the people of Israel. I think that's helpful. I always think about it as there are stories and then there are stories. Ones that, mm-hmm. that just ones that are true and there's also ones that are that are true in different ways not because they describe what happened historically like you were talking about but that they they talk about 
our families and the way that we were shaped. And I think that's maybe a more helpful way to think about Genesis. And one of the places you see that pretty often in Genesis is they don't have a place name and you'll tell some story and then it'll say, that's why this place is called Bethel. Right. That story is probably in there to explain why Bethel is called Bethel. Right. And that's probably a story that's been communicated and passed down and then became part of these these written narratives as well. Oh, can I? There was one other thing that stood out to me, um, and that was um, the response uh, that Rachel and Leah give to Jacob's kind of soliloquy about how unfair everything is towards him. The way that scripture is constructed and the time in which it was constructed we need to pay attention whenever folks who are not celebrated people groups um, are given dialogue in the text. Those are times we need to pay attention to. And so I was just looking at their response again, and didn't I didn't know if anything came up for you as you were looking at it as well about their response. It's just like, it both is, it feels at least on an initial read, kind of like, ugh, you know, we're already in a tough situation anyway we might as well go with this guy because our like our father's given up everything that was was ours and our children's to him anyway and so it feels like it feels like a reclamation of some level of agency too um in a situation where at least their culture and community might define that they wouldn't they wouldn't have have agency but was there anything that came up in your research about their response at all? Okay. Robert Alter has an additional sort of helpful comment, I think. Okay. In line 15, he translates it. For Laban has sold us, and he has wholly consumed our money. And Robert Alter says, In a socially decorous marriage, a large part of the bride price will go to the bride. Laban, however, has evidently pocketed all the fruits of Jacob's 14 years of labor. His daughters thus see themselves reduced to chattel by their father, not married off, but rather sold for profit, as though they were not his flesh and blood. I think that fits what you're, what you're talking about, in which they're, they're claiming some type of agency, not as property. They're taking a stand against this economic situation that has forced them into this, and even stolen part of their bride price. And I also love that the line, it's from verse 19, that Rachel stole the household gods as well. It wasn't just reclaiming like money or livestock that felt like should be theirs. It was also reclaiming something that was meaningful to the experience of the family, experience of that household, and kind of saying, this is no longer yours you abuse this this is coming with us because we recognize what makes this family belong together i don't know i don't i don't want to put too i I don't think i know enough about what household gods represented and how they functioned but that also seems like a really significant act of stepping beyond what their plan there wasn't anything stated about the plan to you know take the household gods on the way out but yet rachel takes that step yeah, you can tell what's meaningful, right? When people are about to leave and, like, what are they grabbing? Like, that must somehow be be meaningful to her. 
And it's interesting that like she takes them from her father, right? So like he can't have them anymore. Right. Ugh, this text is so good and so rich. I feel like we could keep going going on about some of this stuff for a while. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share about the story? Or do you think uh, think you want to move on to what's the point? I think we're ready to move on to what's the point. I've been thinking about this, and you had touched, uh, touched on this earlier, but I've been thinking about this in the way that Israel sees itself as a trickster and the way that that can somehow, it can come back to bite us by the systems that oppress us. Like we find these creative ways to subvert the system but I don't want to give too much of the story away, but Laban comes at chasing after them in the next part. So it's kind of like the like the very characteristics that define our identity that you might identify as like strengths or just central to who we are are also things that kind of cause our <laughs> cause our downfall, right? It's exactly. the, the exactly. you know, to use mo- more modern language, kind of like the shadow side to strengths that we might have. I like how you didn't want. I like how you didn't want to spoil the end of Genesis. Like people <laughs> didn't have the opportunity to read it beforehand, or something like that. There, though. I think Genesis is one of the most compelling, just narrative portions of the mm. Bible. So I didn't want to. I didn't want to ruin the sheer joy of the story. I think we're past like the point. Like I think the statute of limitations has run out on spoiler alerts about Genesis. I think you're good. Okay, I'll remember that for the next time. I think one of the ways we can think about the strengths also being our downfall is both personally and collectively. Like if this is about Israel in general, I think this can also tell us something collectively. I don't want to just think like, oh, it's just about me, but I certainly think it is about me. I think it can tell us something about society as a whole, too. Right. Is there any particular group that you're thinking about with that? Well, I was thinking, like, really large scale. Like, what are the myths that and stories that we tell about our country and about its founding and the ways that yeah. that shapes us, right, to have a particular view of ourselves? But there's another, there's an underside to those strengths that we put forward. Yeah. Well, I'm even, I'm even thinking about how a country that at least the narr- the dominant narrative it puts forward about its founding is based on revolution against tyranny like also the way that it fuel it fuels revolution against the tyranny that it expresses in its you know in its existence now is kind of this contradictory experience this tense experience too of we are we are a country at least purported to be founded on f- these freedoms but then when people are standing up for those freedoms, how do we view them? How do we respond to them? It's this, this nature of like, does, does revolution beget revolution even in the long term? And how do we, how do we respond to that? But I also think, though, you're, you're identifying something, too, that it's not just like the characteristics perpetuating themselves. It's the characteristics that then create the underside, then develop the harm that's done knowingly or very knowingly and purposefully in in the name of those kind of central identity markers and characteristics. And so you think about, at least early on, the United States being called the land of opportunity, 
but it was not a land of opportunity for those whom were already living on the land and who were executed and displaced to make those lands lands of opportunity for white Protestant folks. There's both like the perpetuation of identity that kind of works against itself, like Jacob being a trickster and then Laban tricking him, like that that's kind of perpetuating it. But then there's also the the fact that Jacob also may have walked into being tricked by Laban because he assumed that he was the trickster and he's the smartest one in the room because that's the that's the assumption of someone like that. And so that then became the the underside and the downfall was his was him being gullible. It's fascinating the way that we just get sucked into these dominant narratives and lose out on the all these voices from the underside. I always call that text making compliant readers. Like when you read, it's like who do you identify with? You're just like, oh, I identify with Jacob, and then you miss out on all these kind of other all these other people who are on the periphery, right? You read the Gospels, and you're like, well, of course I'm one of the disciples, and then you, you lose out on all these other people. It's interesting to think about that, even large-scale in our country. Like, who am I? Well, of course I'd be one of the people who, you know, is supporting you know, X, Y, and Z, right, at the beginning. Of course now I'm supporting X, Y, and Z. It's easy to get caught up and to see just just the surface. This is a really helpful step to start taking, too. I mean, if you can think about the Exodus narrative, who do we usually identify with? Well, Moses and the people of Israel as they're being delivered. Who should white people probably connect with a little bit more? The Egyptians <laughs> yep. and Pharaoh. You think about the conquest narrative? Maybe yep. in this case we're identifying with the right people and the Israelites, but think about who would identify with the Canaanites and the people who are already living in the land when another group comes to conquer and execute them. Like that, that experience among indigenous readers of Hebrew Bible is real and powerful. And we often, because we've been tied to this dominant narrative, we just gloss over stories and experiences like that. And let alone the cultural implications for that kind of dismissal, we are missing out on something really profound about the text and the story because it doesn't fit that dominant narrative. That is lessening our experience of the scripture and it's leading to problematic, harmful, oppressive ways that we live and organize our lives. I feel like we're flirting with this, so I'm just going to say it. I think whenever we hear the phrase, make America great again, we also need to ask this, these same questions. Who was it great for, how did it get to be great, and who was punished or disadvantaged in the process? Right. Like, who do we align ourselves with when we hear make America great again? Yeah. Greatness and aspiration aren't inherently bad things. I think there are things in a lot of situations we'd encourage, but that language, that dog whistling to a bygone time of overt oppression of enslaving people of executing indigenous folks it doesn't feel it doesn't feel that great when you tell the tell the whole story i think this reading from the from the underside that we've been talking about is just a really helpful lens 
to take with us as we keep reading the Bible, which I feel like we've been doing that a lot recently. But I think it's helpful in this episode to like make it really explicit. This is one of the ways that we're reading. This is like one of the one of the things that we're like bringing with us all the time. Yeah, and I think that that privilege is afforded to us because I think for both of us we're kind of unlearning that dominant that dominant reading. We've both been around the Bible for a long time and have that opportunity to ask some more questions about those about the underside about I, I love what my one of my professors doc, Dr. Hopkins at Wesley Seminary would say the difference between the black fire of the text and the white fire of the text um, so we often talk about the black fire which is the printed words on the page but the white fire is the stuff that's unwritten that still burns and that still communicates and still makes something known even though it's not explicitly said in the text i think that that way of reading is something that as we continue with this project and continue in our own faith again it's a unique opportunity to i've used this word a lot in the podcast but to continue unlearning the ways that we've been trained to view and weaponize scripture to perpetuate harm I think it's time to pray. Gracious God, on the cross you identify with those on the underside. Empower us to do the same. To resist narratives that oppress others. And to side with those who are last, lost, least, little, and lifeless. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in next week for our episode. Jonathan, what story are we telling next week? We are going to take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>